All right, we are back. We need to clarify something we said a couple shows ago, that there was great hope in the possibility of um, the serum of people who have had and cleared the virus being a, a therapeutic treatment. Although that remains a true statement, it does need a, a, a bit of a qualifier. Noted New Scientist magazine in its March 28th issue. In answer to the question, do you become immune once you have been infected, the magazine said, Say you've caught COVID-19 and recovered. Are you now immune for life or could you catch it again? And we just don't know yet. In February, reports emerged of a woman in Japan who'd been given the all clear after having COVID-19, but then tested positive a second time. There have also been reports of a man in Japan testing positive after after being given the all clear. And anecdotal cases of second positives have emerged in China too. This has raised fears that people may not develop immunity to the virus. That would mean that until we have an effective vaccine, we could experience repeated rounds of infection. But the science is still uncertain. Peace quotes Ira Longini at the University of Florida saying, there is some anecdotal evidence of reinfections, but we really don't know. It may be that the tests used were unreliable, which is a problem with tests for other respiratory viruses. Early signs from animal experiments are reassuring. A team from the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences in Beijing exposed four rhesus macaques to the virus. A week later, all four were ill with COVID-like symptoms and had, a high, and had high virus loads. Two weeks later, the macaques had recovered and were confirmed to have antibodies to the virus in their bloodstreams. The researchers then tried to reinfect two of them, but failed, which suggests the animals were immune. But that doesn't necessarily mean long-term immunity. There are other coronaviruses circulating among humans, and although they induce immunity, this doesn't last. Peter Openshaw of the Imperial College in London said some other viruses in the coronavirus family, such as those that cause common colds, tend to induce immunity that was relatively short-lived. Because this virus is so new, we do not yet know how long any protection generated through infection will last. Now, we're all looking for some useful data uh, among this huge volume of information being generated. New scientists decided to uh, turn over the typewriter, as it were, to Graham Lawton, who is a feature writer and columnist at the magazine. One of the great mysteries that's, uh, that's hanging over our heads right now to this correspondent is that question of how many people that contract the virus remain asymptomatic versus those who become ill. Graham Lawton took a look at some of the research that was published last week by Jeffrey Shaman of Columbia University in New York, who, along with colleagues, analyzed the course of the epidemic in 375 Chinese cities between the 10th of January when the epidemic took off and January 23rd when containment measures, such as travel restrictions, got imposed. I need to pause right there to interject the breaking news that... um, The data from China is believed to be suspect by United States intelligence agencies. One of our contributors has a Chinese friend who speaks Chinese and is in contact with people back in China who reported that things were five times worse there than were reported officially. In our talk with Wen Zhao on the program some weeks ago, the the dissident Chinese blogger operating out of Canada said that he'd heard things were 10 times worse than reported in China. We've gotten an unconfirmed report from an otherwise seemingly reliable source that the Chinese at some point along the way have ordered 26,000 urns in which to place the ashes of the cremated. 
since China officially has only reported 2,600 deaths, if they have ordered 26,000 urns, you'd have to say, well, maybe they are off by a factor of 10. Anyway, Fortune Magazine is reporting that stacks of urns outside funeral homes in Hubei provinces have driven public doubt in Beijing's reporting. Deborah Burks, a State Department immunologist advising the White House on its response to the outbreak, said on March 31st that China's public reporting influenced assumptions elsewhere in the world about the nature of the virus. She said, quote, The medical community interpreted the Chinese data as, this was serious but smaller than anyone expected. Adding, but I think probably we're missing a significant amount of data now that we see hap- now that we see what happened to Italy and what is happening to Spain. Fortune reports that China is not the only country with suspect public reporting. Western officials have pointed to Iran, Russia, Indonesia, and especially North Korea, which has not reported a single case of the disease, as probable undercounts. Others, including Saudi Arabia and Egypt, may also be playing down their numbers. All right, but back to New Scientist. The Columbia University study concluded that 86% of cases were quote-unquote undocumented, that is, asymptomatic, or had only very mild symptoms. And I gotta say, thinking about it, that fine line between asymptomatic and very mild symptoms is, um, is, I think, gonna turn out to be a minefield when it comes to analysis. Nevertheless, the researchers also analyzed case data from foreign nationals who were evacuated from Wuhan where the first cases were seen. And they found a similar proportion of asymptomatic or very mild cases. Such undocumented cases, it's noted, are still contagious. The study found them to be the source of most of the virus spread in China before the restrictions came in. Even though these people were only 55% as contagious as people with symptoms, and no, we have no idea how they came up with that figure, the study found they were the source of 79% of further infections due to there being more of them and the higher likelihood that they were out and about. The article notes that once someone is infected, the incubation period is usually between 2 and 14 days, with half of the cases showing symptoms before the sixth day. However, this was calculated by studying 181 confirmed cases, meaning it is unlikely to have taken very mild and symptomatic cases into account. The piece goes on to say even people who develop symptoms are at risk of unwittingly spreading the virus. A study in China suggests that infectiousness starts about 2.5 days before the onset of symptoms and peaks 15 hours before. Said Graham Lawton, we know that coughs and sneezes spread the virus, so how is it possible for asymptomatic people to spread the infection? People with mild or no symptoms can have very high viral loads in their upper respiratory tracts, meaning they can shed the virus through spitting, touching their mouths or noses, and then a surface, or possibly talking. Even people who don't feel ill occasionally cough or sneeze. Once symptoms develop, a person's viral load declines steadily and they become increasingly less infectious. However, people appear to keep shedding the virus for about two weeks after they recover from COVID-19, both in their saliva and stools. And no, we don't know whether that has uh, played into the, um, the decision to extend the um, uh, sheltering in place, the fact that you may actually remain infectious after you seem to be better. But Lawton does make the obvious conclusion this, that this means that even once a person's symptoms have cleared, it may still be possible to infect others. 
Anyway, the sad conclusion to this article is that what all this makes clear is that advising only people with a cough or fever and their families to self-isolate won't prevent the coronavirus from spreading thanks to its fiendish ability to cause very mild symptoms in people and to peak in infectiousness even before people realize they're sick. Anyway, there appears to be perhaps some good news in this piece, but we're going to find ourselves back in the middle of the minefield. To assume that that 86% of cases in China that were undocumented represent asymptomatic people, that would mean that that mysterious figure that we need to know, that ratio between those who are asymptomatic and those who have symptoms, might be 7 to 1. That would mean that all of those death rates we see around the world should in fact be reduced by a factor of 7. And wouldn't that be nice? Italy, per its published statistics, shows a death-to-case ratio of about 12%, which would put it ahead of SARS. You would hope that that number could in fact be divided by seven, although the number you're left with is still pretty hair-raising. And I gotta say, my hair was certainly raised by another piece appearing in Forbes a couple days back. In fact, I think this kind of lit my hair on fire. And by the way, if you're not one of the lucky recipients of the mass mailing I put out of the the head of the Korean response to the COVID virus, uh, excellent, excellent interview, a lot of good information on it. It is worth your time to find it and review all 36 minutes of it. In the beginning of that tape, Korea's expert on COVID-19 said that their feeling was that 20% of the people in Korea were asymptomatic. That figure got my undivided attention because if it were true, that would mean that unlike what that Chinese study suggests, the ratio might be 7 to 1 asymptomatic to people that are sick. The real ratio, at least per the Koreans, might be 0.2 to 1. If that were true, then one would take those estimates of fatality rate, number of deaths versus cases, and not divide it by seven, but in fact only reduce it by 17%. Another correspondent of this show who's currently isolated and uh, marooned, I guess you'd say, down in the Caribbean, in this case a uh, very capable anesthesiologist friend of mine, took a lot of the numbers I was sending to him for review and did me one better. He sent back uh, a very brief note saying, okay, am I doing the math wrong here? Take the number of deaths worldwide, divide by the number of cases worldwide, and you're running at 5%. The figure that we keep hearing is 0.5%, which is still 5 to 10 times worse than the flu, but, well, it's certainly not the same as 5%. That notorious world pandemic of influenza back in 1918 is estimated to have killed about 50 million The world population at that time stood at 1.5 billion, meaning the 1918 so-called Spanish flu killed every 30th person, or 3.3%. A virus with numbers like that is going to rack up one gigantic body count. Now, the current figures in the United States are standing at about 2.2%. Germany, which is considered the model for how things should be done, at least among Western nations, uh, is running at 1.1%. And Korea, that nation we so admire for, for 
limiting its cases to a mere 9,000, which is about, uh, by comparison, about where California is presently. The reported Korean death rate was 1.7%. Now, if that Korean physician is right, and the number of asymptomatic people to sick people is a number only one-fifth as large, and you reduce the Korean number by a fifth, you're still at 1.4% fatality rate. This is scary. We are hoping that that 0.2 to 1 ratio is wrong. And after this long digression, let me return back to the Forbes article, because it was about two other studies that seemed to back up that figure of the Korean pandemic responder. Now, one reason we should, I think, trust the numbers from Korea, perhaps, is the fact that Korea has tested hundreds of thousands of people, something like 400,000 people by, by now, so that you can't say in the case of Korea that they're missing a huge number of people, John Q. citizen, who might otherwise be harboring the disease and be asymptomatic. They're testing a lot of people. They should have picked those folks up. So, at first glance, it would seem that, you know, we might want to put some faith in the Korean numbers, as dismaying as they may be. Anyway, a study published in the journal Euro Surveillance, as reported in Forbes, was conducted by a team from Kyoto University on the Diamond Princess cruise ship. Now, this cruise ship is also one of the few other examples we have where almost everybody in the population was tested. They did not test everybody aboard the ship, unfortunately. The ship had 3,711 passengers and crew members, but they did test 3,063, which is the vast majority. We reported preliminary numbers on this program a couple of weeks ago. The number of positive COVIDs has not changed. It was 634. But at that time, a week ago, they felt that 306 had symptoms, but 328 did not. Well, evidently, in the time that's passed since then, a lot of those 328 came down with it, or at least showed symptoms. Because when Kyoto University ran the numbers, they concluded that only 18% of those infected remained asymptomatic throughout. With a sample size that large, the interval uh, for that data ranged from 15.5 to 20.2%. Again, that's pretty good agreement with the story coming out of Korea. What's interesting about that is that those results suggest that the SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 virus, may be similar to influenza in one way, the asymptomatic rate. A study published by the journal Emerging Infectious Disease estimated the asymptomatic rate for influenza to be 19%, with a 95% confidence interval of 5 to 35%. That's quite large, but nevertheless, it's in the same ballpark, so to speak. Although the article in Forbes went on to say that, no, comparing COVID-19 to the flu is, is not saying that it's the same as the flu. It's not just like the flu. It's different than the seasonal flu. It's not the flu. To which they added, oh, yes, and by the way, SARS-CoV-2 is not the same as the flu. But this 15 to 20% range, based on the Diamond Princess cruise ship, does overlap with a range provided by a second study which is going to be published in a research letter in the International Journal of Infectious Diseases. A pre-print proof version of the letter is available online. This study analyzed 565 Japanese nationals who were evacuated from Wuhan. The research team was primarily from Hokkaido University in Japan, and it found that almost a third, 30 
0.8% of those who tested positive remained asymptomatic. Now, it's a smaller sample, so their confidence level was quite wide, 77 to 54%. But these three different streams of data do tend to converge on the depressing statistic that there may be fewer people who remain asymptomatic than get sick, meaning that those death rates cannot be expected to be, be divided by a large multiple. We hope, we certainly hope that new data will emerge in the not too distant future that shows that um, this is not the case. We have so many questions that remain at this point unanswered. Uh, over the years of practicing medicine, uh, I was asked by many a patient uh, a, a, a fair question that I didn't know how to answer because medical science doesn't know how to answer. One of the Bay Area stations, I recently heard a medical doctor who was put on the spot to talk about, uh, you know, <laughs> answers to questions about the COVID-19 virus, who, who was struggling. Somebody asked her a question I've been asked many, many times over the years, which was, if the body mounts a fever to help you recover from a disease, and we then treat the fever so you feel better, aren't we then hindering the body's response? That is, in fact, a very good question to which medical science does not have a very good answer. The studies have shown over the years that it appears when we lower people's fever, they don't seem to do worse. And since they certainly feel better, we continue to do it. I had to chuckle when the, the doctor on the radio uh, cited a study that I, I myself have <laughs> mentioned to patients over the years because it turns up in the textbooks, which was that studies of animals who are cold-blooded like lizards, like lizards, shows that when they come down with an infection, they make an extra effort to heat up. And of course, cold-blooded animals, anyone who's ever seen a lizard uh, sunning out on a rock knows that they kind of depend on the environment to help heat them up. Well, when they're sick, they go overboard in that direction, implying that, you know, in nature's, in, in the way of nature's wisdom, they, they, they figure this is going to help them. And if you'll, if you'll permit me one brief humorous aside, when we were first being taught about this back in medical school days, I remember my good friend and colleague, Frank Herrera, who after a long lecture about different types of metabolism where, you know, different animals out there were holotherms and homeotherms, et cetera, that, you know, being overwhelmed medical students, Frank kind of sighed, looked at me and said, I can just see how this is going to go someday in the distant future. I'm going to be sitting in my office and a lizard's going to come in. He's going to say, I don't know, Doc. I just don't have the energy that I, that I would expect. And I'm going to look at him and say, hey, you're a poikilotherm, bro. Anyway, many decades ago, medical science wasn't sure how to make that jump from lizards to man, and I think we're still not. But we're still looking for answers. And Graham Lawton, the second piece in New Scientist, took a whack at our immune system. Another very much unanswered question is why two people get exposed, one person gets sick, and the, the other one doesn't. Well, a lot of it has to do with your physiology, your metabolism, etc., how one person's immune system is different than the next. But I think some of it undoubtedly has to do with how big an inoculum you receive. I think scientists are more familiar with looking at this sort of thing with bacteria than they are with viruses. I recall reading in the Guinness Book of World Records about the most infectious bacteria known to medical science. I, I think it was the bug that causes typhoid fever. Uh, it estimated that as few as 10 infectious bacteria could make a person ill. 
Now, that's the number one badass bacteria out there, which tells us that normally to get infected, you need, well, let's say thousands or tens of thousands of, of, of bugs to attack you because your immune system is generally going to fight off one straggler. It's like the difference between being attacked by one person and being attacked by an army. Obviously, a larger army, a more, obviously, a larger army is going to make more progress. One would presume that someone who gets exposed to, let's just say, a thousand viruses might remain asymptomatic. The virus just has a harder time getting a toehold, whereas uh, another person who faces a D-Day type invasion of trillions of bugs is going to do worse. Again, research into this will continue. But I was quite impressed by reading Lawton's piece on the immune system in New Scientist, at least at first. He started out by noting that, as anyone who studied immunology will tell you, the immune system is immensely, mind-bogglingly intricate. It's the second most complicated system in your body after your brain, said Shai Shen Or, an immunologist at the Technion Israel Institute of Technology. It consists of hundreds of cell types and signaling molecules controlled by 8,000 genes interacting in a network of near-infinite complexity. Happily, you don't need to know all of its intricacies to take advantage of the latest developments in immunology, although a little knowledge can help. It notes if you're younger than 60, in good health, and you don't have too many bad habits, then your immune system is probably functioning well enough to keep you safe from almost any infectious disease, including coronavirus. The bad news is that as we age, our immune systems gradually deteriorate too. This immunosenescence starts to affect people's health at about 60, said Janet Lord at the University of Birmingham. The older you get, the weaker your immune system becomes, and the more likely you are to get seriously ill or die because of it. During a typical winter flu season, for example, very few under the age of 65 get ill enough to be hospitalized. Of course, having said that, uh, the opposite was the case with the 1918 flu epidemic. And happily, <laughs> that, that, uh, that mantra that this is not the same as COVID-19, in this case, is a good thing. Because that 1918 virus selectively struck down the young and healthy. We don't have time to go into that today, but we may talk about it in the future. The article mentions that there's a newly developed concept in medicine called immune age. It is similar to biological age, which uses chemical tags progressively added to genes throughout life to measure how far down the trajectory of aging someone has traveled, regardless of the number of years on the clock. Biological age and chronological age are usually coupled, but it can diverge by as much as 20 years either way. And unlike chronological age, biological age can go down as well as up, usually as a result of deliberate lifestyle changes. That piques one's interest, doesn't it? Peace notes that until very recently, it was impossible to measure immune age, but last year a team led by Shen Orr and Mark Davis at Stanford revealed a way to do it. Using a multi-omics approach, looking at a person's genome, immune system, and protein function, the authors audited the immune system of 135 people in two age brackets, 20 to 31 and 60 to 96. They then repeated the measurements several times over nine years. What they discovered was that human immune system follows a predictable trajectory. 
We can give you a number which says where you are going on this trajectory. That is your immune age, says Shen Or, and is a very good predictor of all-cause mortality. And no, there's no commercial test available for this yet. Articles suggest that probably the best way to gauge your immune age is to get your biological age tested because the two are correlated. Peace notes that you, regardless, you don't need to know your immune age to take steps to lower it. It turns out that many of the emerging anti-aging drugs and strategies do their stuff, at least in part, by arresting or even reversing immunosenescence. One key approach to keeping our immune age down relates to the fact that as we get older, some of our immune cells begin to misbehave. The article goes on to explain how our cells that normally are supposed to fight invaders can sometimes lose their way and become less efficient at it, and even worse, sometimes attack us, create inflammation, which is not good. But the article notes that statins, the ordinary cholesterol-lowering drugs taken by millions of people, seem to help in this area. I find that very interesting, but more data is certainly needed. There's also a drug-free way to rejuvenate your neutrophil cells and others. Exercise. This is something to keep in mind as we are all uh, uh, socially distancing ourselves. We should get out and take a walk and take a hike and keep active, even though you can't go pump iron at your local gym. We've said in this program before, and we'll say again, that one of the few things on earth that's probably everything that is cracked up to be is exercise. The article goes on to mention uh, some evidence that there may be benefits from vitamin E and vitamin D and zinc supplementation, but I have a feeling that if New Scientist wasn't desperately looking for things to be optimistic about, they probably wouldn't have included that in this particular article. Nevertheless, it's always been worth looking at, and we should continue to look in that direction, but I just don't want to give everybody the idea that there's going to be some miracle supplement that's going to make a radical difference. And if you are looking to uh, live a longer and more healthy life, one thing that's been proven again and again to work is calorie restriction. It's just that it ain't easy to keep up with. New Scientist notes that, uh, that intermittent fasting does seem to bring some of the same benefits of uh, reducing your total calories over time. There's various ways to do that. So there's the 16-8 diet, which involves completely uh, uh, ignoring calories for 16 hours a day and only eating in the 8-hour window. They note that done even just once a week, this is an effective way of slowing aging and strengthening the immune system. So there you have it. All right, in the one or two minutes we have left, let's jump to the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for shortcuts after Pope Francis advised the planet's 1.2 billion Catholics that if they can't confess in person to a priest during this pandemic, they should speak, quote, directly to God, unquote. The Pope recommended assuring God, I will go to confession afterward, but forgive me now. On the other hand, it was a bad week last week for sewer lines, which the New York Times reported are getting clogged coast to coast by germ-killing Americans flushing tons of disinfectant wipes and paper towels down their toilets. Do not do this. And lastly, it was an ugly week this last week for multiple choice, with the news that Fox business host Lou Dobbs conducted a scientific, in quotes, poll of his audience about President Trump's leadership during the pandemic. Viewers were asked whether they considered Trump to have been 
superb, great, or merely very good. That about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. we got so much more to talk about. We'll see you next week, at which time we'll see if we can introduce some news that doesn't surround coronavirus. Wouldn't that be a nice break? Other things are going on in the world. We'll see you then. Sanitizer, hot water, wash them till they're blue. Wash your dirty hands so you don't get the flu. Wash your hands. Wow, 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 wow. Wash your hands. Wow, 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 wow. When you're giving high fives, try not to touch your eyes. Don't pick things off the street. It's like you touch the toilet seat.